everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We're doing the second part of our discussion here on faith and science. And in this episode, we're going to turn our attention a little bit from the science to the philosophy of science, especially the way that um, science, the philosophy of science, and theology work together. This is, while it's a mirror image in some ways of the conversation we just had, in a lot of ways it, it supersedes and precedes the conversation we just had. And I think what will become clear in the conversation is philosophy and science, and, and I would group with that religion and science, defined the right way should have a very unique kind of mutual relationship. And one of the things I really love about this book that we've been, been talking through, Theistic Evolution, is it wasn't just edited by Stephen Meyer, who is uh, a PhD in science, in the philosophy of science, actually, uh, but, but certainly does good data-driven scientific work. It was also edited by J.P. Moreland and Wayne Grudem, who bring a philosophical and a theological lens. And there's an entire section of this book based on how theology and religion interact with uh, the kind of science that we want to see done and the kind of science that we see being done in the world. I wanted to kick off this part of the conversation with a quote from J.P. Moreland. So in the chapter that he writes, it's kind of an introduction to the second half of the book, he says, for example, um, and he's referring to the times when we feel pressure to adapt our worldview to the science that we're reading about. He says, for, for example, we may think that not encouraging potential converts to reject theistic evolution will cause more people to come to Christ. And in the short run, it might. But in the long run, the price to be paid by such an approach is the decognitivizing of Christianity, making Christianity a religion that has nothing at all to do with the mind or with reason, with the result that over the long haul, most people simply ignore Christianity as a silly superstition whose practitioners caved into the prevailing contemporary current of ideas instead of holding their ground and eventually winning the arguments due to hard-hitting scholarship and confidence in the Bible. And the thing that just attracted me to that, that quote in that article is he's not talking about uh, doing science on the one hand or reading your Bible on the other. What he's talking about is the approach that theistic evolution takes where you're constantly amending your religious beliefs to uh, go along with the new advances in science. And it's just interesting to me that what he says is if you do that, you may win more converts in the short term, but what you're actually doing is you're, you're going to suffer atrophy in the hard-hitting and cognitive elements of the Christian faith. And I thought, that's the exact opposite of what you typically think of in approaches to, to uh, the Bible and science. On the one hand, you think the strongest science possible covers the cognitive part of things. Um, the young earth creationism, intelligent design, on the other hand, is complete fideism, just refusing to uh, take account of what's going on in the world. Theistic evolution must be a middle road where you can be a smart Christian. What he's saying is, no, actually, theistic evolution really dumbs down the claims that Christianity makes about itself. And so in some ways, that encapsulates the discussion that I want to have, which is how to be a thoughtful, principled, engaged, scientifically informed Christian. So uh, just to kick things off, I thought maybe it'd be helpful to go over some of the Christian landscape. Where do Christians typically fall on issues uh, that have to do with science? And so maybe let's try to create a little bit of a spectrum of belief when it comes to Christians and their engagement with science. So first, from a way high bird's eye view, touching on that Moreland quote, um, engagement versus non-engagement would be the two extremes of the, the spectrum. Um, is there any obligation to, to attempt to synthesize human experience, whether it's in the world of psychology or science or any other field, to, to faith or can it, is it mm -hmm. ideas or can it just exist on its own little world? Right. And so the strong presuppositionalist camp would say, uh, no, we don't need to synthesize any part of external knowledge uh, from revelation to revelation. We, we start with revelation and we stay there. Um, 
knowledge is meant to be relational to God, and so there can't be any knowledge that doesn't exist in that relationship, any true knowledge or wholesome knowledge. So that would be one end of the spectrum that um, this certainly has some adherence, I think, is a, a wee bit extreme, mm-hmm. uh, to say the least. Um, I, I think you see New Testament authors doing some synthesis of here's what you know and here's how that fits into what I'm telling you. Yeah. Um, on the other end of the extreme is to start with the presupposition of human experience as kind of the abs- absolute arbiter of truth. Uh, to that end, I think of maybe like the, the German rationalist who demythologized the Bible. Uh, I, I know the Archimedes principle is true, so nobody can walk on water. So I'll start with you can't walk on water, and then I'll read the Bible and figure out how to fix that. Mm-hmm. I know the dead don't rise, so I'll, I'll fix that. And, and you end up that opposite extreme. Yeah. And so probably that's the two poles of the conversation, and you're... Young Earth creationist is doing a ver- both, both the Young Earth creationist and the theistic evolutionist. They're both doing a kind of synthesis, uh-huh. but just they're further on one end or the other. The, mm-hmm. the Young Earth creationist is saying, "I want to give up less," and and the theistic evolutionist is saying, "I'm more comfortable making a, more synthesis." Yeah. And less heavily dependent on what I'm reading as a priori. Right. Yeah, and I, I just to play off of what you're saying, you know, a lot the phrase that you hear so often lobbed at either side is the God of the gaps. And yeah. and essentially, you know, the God of the gaps in its simplest form is I will explain everything we can, we'll put God in the middle of things that we can't explain, and then the hazard is as you can explain more, you need less of God. Yeah. But but something that I think is a keen observation that you made is theistic evolution on the one hand and certain versions of young earth creationism on the other hand are both doing a god of the gaps. It's just a photonegative version of... of, So uh, certain versions of young earth creationism will take the Bible as authoritative on nearly everything, uh, definitive statement on nearly everything, and in the spaces you can put science. So in these gaps that we have, you could put science in there, uh, but they are well defined by what we know from scripture. And I'm not saying that that approach is necessarily wrong. I think of like creation museum kind of, like that version of, it's going to take a biblical framework and then kind of squeeze science into it. Or we might say, in some cases, questionable science. Because they've put something else ahead of the science. Yes. Um, Admittedly. I mean, they've told you up front we're doing that. And And it's not just a a commitment to the Bible, but it's saying that we're going to input things into like the physical world in a sense that we've read read out of the Bible and put into the physical world and that gets in the way of the science. Right. Yeah, and then on the other side, obviously you have the theistic evolutionists and certain versions of that, I would say, you just adopt the science wholesale and then you look at where the science is incomplete. So a great example of this would be just the concept of theistic evolution. One of the things that evolution cannot explain is origins. So... Even if you could, and in our last podcast episode, we talked about the difficulties of being able to have an uh, evolutionary model explain how you got from matter to humanity, broadly speaking. But one of the things that, that uh, is kind of a notorious hole for Darwinian evolution is how can you get the matter in the first place? How can you get cognition in the first place? Well, what theistic evolution does is it's going to come along and say, okay, we've got science to explain all of this, but we don't actually know how all of this got here. Okay, well, that must be where God comes into play. He created everything, and then the scientific processes took over from there. Both of them are effectively a God of the gaps kind of uh, scenario. And there's more available. I think that's what that Moreland quote is getting to, is there's more available than just a God of the gaps on either side. So the the groups that you you know often hear about in in this would be like answers in Genesis for example that'd be uh, Ken Ham that'd be John MacArthur those guys are on the young Earth creationist side they are trying to do some serious science but from some some presuppositions that make it very difficult yeah. uh, to engage with the broader scientific community 
uh, BioLogos is kind of the other pole. A lot of the theistic evolution stuff that you read is going to come from them. And uh, they are a pretty diverse group. And my, and my criticism against them would be, honestly, that they're too diverse in the yeah. sense that you can both be an evangelical Christian and you can be a wholesale Darwinian evolutionist and belong to BioLogos. So uh, I don't think they demarcate well enough. But that would include people like Francis Collins on the one hand, uh, who's an evangelical head of the uh, Human Genome Project, um, who I think we'll talk about later on. It would include people like Tim Keller, uh, who was a board member of BioLogos. Uh, Dennis Lamoureux, who's a guy that not, not many people come across, but uh, has written a pretty, pr- a pretty prevalent book sponsored by BioLogos called um, uh, Evolutionary Creation. Um, and then on a, a, a bit further than them, you get people like Peter Enns, maybe, uh, who I wouldn't know the difference between him and just a regular Darwinian evolutionist, uh, but is going to claim to be a Christian and just accept wholesale at the, at the detriment of Scripture whatever he reads in, in the scientific literature. So to kick off the discussion where the book does and kind of I think where our interest is, uh, I wanted to start with with just an anecdotal entry to this topic, which would be middle school science. You're sitting in a chemistry class or uh, whatever, life sciences or earth sciences or whatever you take in middle school, and you're introduced to this concept of metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism. And I can remember even being in a Christian school having the teacher say, okay, we don't have to be metaphysical naturalists. You know, we don't have to be materialists and believe that that's all that there is. But when it comes to doing science, we have to be methodological naturalists. We have to assume that there's nothing beyond what we can physically explain. That's the way you do good science. Um, was that you guys' experience? And if so, what do you think are the consequences or um what ways does that shape the way we think about science? Yeah, that was also my experience. And I think it makes sense in the idea that if you're doing science, you need to focus just on what science deals with, which is the natural world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's hard to keep that mindset and not transition into the idea that science can solve all of your problems. It can solve all the world's problems. Um, And so I think by doing that and compartmentalizing, you're actually putting more trust into science than it can actually provide. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you remove that from it, then I think it actually grows in what you think it can tell you. And so instead of um, being open to the idea that there's more out there and that there is philosophy that can go beyond what science can tell you. Yeah. I think the, the biggest credit to that point of view and the biggest defeater to that point of view of methodological naturalism is the same thing, and it's technology. That, on the one hand, it seems to prove the point technology works. You don't have to have a theology to work your cell phone or use the Internet or uh, to have you know laser-guided surgery or any of the amazing things that are out there. You don't need a theology for that to function, which seems to demonstrate, hey, we can carry on the business of civilization building through technology, uh, without any kind of theology. At the same time, at every turn in the 20th century and now the 21st century, we find out, boy, we had better find out some ethical, there's an inescapable moral component to every facet of human life, Mm -hmm. including technology. And in fact, technology multiplied the areas uh, and avenues for moral application faster than we had ways of accounting for it. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, we were decreasing our intellectual engagement of morality. Right, we're, we're doing less thinking about what is morality. We're doing more thinking about technology, and one was quickly outpacing the other. And that proved to be a pretty rough history for the... Mm-hmm. Humanity didn't do well in the 20th century. Yeah, uh, We thought of a lot of great ways to kill ourselves. And... So technology both proves the case, yes, functionally it works, um, and yet we're also finding out pretty quick that we're going to have to have some boundaries, and only moral vision of the universe can do that, Mm -hmm. whether it's eugenics or atomic theory or, um, what are we talking about at lunch, we're talking about uh, uh, AI and and Mm -hmm. cars that park themselves, like there is no facet of human life 
that's not going to have a moral component. Mm-hmm. And technology only multiplies it, doesn't reduce it. Yeah, that's very true. And, and, and just the, the latent assumption that technology is amoral is just proving to be untrue the further we get into technology. Absolutely false. Yeah, I mean, we, we know it's not true. Yeah. Uh, we, we knew it when we watched Jurassic Park, right? Let's give Ian Malcolm some credit, right? Yeah. They were so in such a hurry to find out whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think whether or not they should. Right. Uh, and then the dinosaurs ate them. Right, <laughs> exactly. there's, there's a little morality play in that. There's yes. some truth to it. And we yes. slip into the idea that instead of being a means to an end, technology can be an end in itself. So yeah. just mm-hmm. the more we can produce, the farther we can advance, and we don't stop to think about well, what actually is the end. Yeah. What is the end game here? Right. And one of the points I think is really well made in the book, and especially in the in the second section of the book, is truth is a bigger category than science. And one of the one of the mistakes that you make in naturalism of either kind, one more overtly, you know, metaphysical naturalism than 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 methodological naturalism is you begin to shrink the Venn diagram down, or really concentric circles down to where truth is limited to the extent that you can prove something scientifically. And, of course, I don't think that's true no matter what your worldview is. I, I think even in a, in a staunchly materialist worldview, you're going to have a lot of trouble saying the only truth, um, even if you're a relativist, is what you can prove scientifically. This doesn't seem to be the way that the world works. doesn't seem to be the way that even more relativists want to reason. Um, I think Sam Harris is going to agree with you. I, mean, yeah. I think ultimately uh, atheistic, naturalistic, and still would really like for there to be some component of morality that yeah. could limit science, not be produced by it. Right, and so if truth is a bigger category, then uh, science is a really, really great tool to discover certain kinds of or certain portions of truth. And a distinction that that Stephen Meyer makes in the book is that science and natural laws that can be derived by science are great at describing things, but they may not be very good at ultimately explaining things. And, And, you know, I think the Big Bang is a great example of this. There's some shifting science at this point on whether or not there was a Big Bang. But if we take that as a given, that may or may not be a great description of what happened at the origin of the universe, but it is not in any way an explanation of the origin of the universe. And a lot of scientific processes are that way. And, and, and coming to this as believers especially, one of the things that we need to keep in mind in terms of the relationship between religion and science is if the pursuit of truth is the goal, then science is obviously a necessary component of that, but it is a component as opposed to the whole. And so, uh, you know, a, a search for the truth is going to take us beyond the bounds of what science can say, and that makes it really important for us to know where the bounds of science are and what it can do well and what it can't do well. Um, in, in a couple of the chapters later in the book, uh, they critique methodological naturalism. And I'm not sure that I would say that methodological naturalism is something that shouldn't be taught in schools. I probably would say that. But um, but I would at least say that the fear that if you don't operate like a naturalist, you can't do good science needs to be challenged. So it's unnecessary. Maybe throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I, I always refer to it as fear of fairies mentality. That if all of a sudden we don't pretend like we're naturalists anymore, we can't prove the concept of gravity because then people will be explaining that things fall to the earth because demons are standing on top of them and fairies are holding things together, and I, I think that's a little bit overblown uh, as a reaction. I think a healthier understanding of where the bounds of what science can do and say and touch would be uh, a better way to instruct people in how to do science than when you do science, you must pretend like this is you're a materialist. I think the fear is probably, I mean, to use an example maybe in medical science, that if we don't do methodological naturalism, you know, you have this doctor who's a Christian doctor and believes in miraculous healing, and and he opens you up for open heart surgery and then just waits for God to do something. And prays. And, you yeah, know, I, I mean, I, yeah. I I want him to carry on the business of fixing me if there's some method, a natural method of doing that. By all means, get to it. Um, and I don't think that's bad. Um, I don't think he has to operate under the assumption that he's the only actor in the universe who might yeah. want me to get better. Mm-hmm. Right. But 
maybe in that case, functioning as if he is isn't a right. terrible idea. Yeah, do everything within your power. Yeah, but, you know, an example I think of for this would be if you know if we're talking about a holistic vision of the universe, we believe in an animated universe as Christians. We we believe that there is supernatural. There are supernatural elements, obviously God, morality. We believe that there's a spiritual realm. We have a spirit. I mean, there's a lot of, There's a lot to this, uh, but none of that comes to the expense of the vision of the universe that we have holistically. There's obviously a natural and supernatural component to the world, and there's more distinctions and and variables than that. But I think of it a little bit like doing a, a, a project at home, and there are certain tools that work certain parts of the project better than others. So if you're putting IKEA furniture together, uh, you know having a screwdriver is going to be really essential for the times that you need to screw something in. Having a hammer at some point to uh, move things into place, obviously having paint at some point is going to be good for specific jobs. The way I see all of this is science is a great paintbrush, uh, or it's a great screwdriver, but to use the paintbrush to try and screw in a nail, uh, screw in a screw is, is wrong. And so, like you said, if, if we expect in the medical profession that the only answer we have is prayer, certainly it is an answer, and in fact, it is an essential part of the answer. It's part of the project that we have of living faithfully. But to see a nail and refuse to use a hammer, uh, when we see something in the natural world and refuse to use the scientific process, is crazy. Um, and, and vice versa, to think that our screwdriver can handle every possible part of every possible project is foolishness. It just doesn't match up with what the world actually is. So, to pick on you, because I think it's a great analogy, but I want to pick at it. Uh, Gould has his you know, separate magisteriums. Mm-hmm. Would you say that we need to use hammers for hammers and screwdrivers for screws? And, and that is there a way that they overlap, or do you think yeah. they need to be kept in their area? Yeah, so I think we have to reject, reject the whole non-overlapping magisteria. Okay. Uh, and part of that is there's, there's the project nature of it. So, in the sense that if you're going to put a bookcase together, uh, there's going to be parts of it that a screwdriver is really good for, uh, and there's going to be parts of it that a hammer is really good for. There's going to be parts of it that whatever else uh, is going to be really good for. But those tools are all involved with the project. Um, And so you have to get a little bit more complicated, obviously. You know, if we're going to go back to the medical example, I think one of the ways that we come at a problem like that is the best science, and the best theology. So we have a science of healing. Um, We want the best drugs, best procedures, the best educated physicians, and we want a robust understanding that God holds every piece of the universe together, and we want to go before him and ask him. The synthesis in my mind comes from the fact that taking a course of antibiotics to get over an infection and praying that God would heal the infection could both be part of the same thing. So God's answer to prayer could be a scientific-based treatment for a sickness. So in that way, maybe it's different than the project analogy uh, because you can actually fulfill both what what Gould would refer to and and others as non-overlapping magisteria through the same solution. Yeah, that's good. I like that analogy, and I think it does help with our spectrum discussion earlier, is that you really do have... Uh, on one end, a presuppositionalist with a screwdriver. On the other end, a, a Darwinian with a hammer. And they're yeah. just flinging tools at each other, and it's terrible. No, nobody can build anything. Right. Um, maybe maybe use the appropriate tool. Yeah. The, the technical term, I think, that's involved here would be plausibility structure. And this, this is where we get into the way that the book addresses how we go about doing science as believers. Mm-hmm. The advantage that we have as believers when it comes to science is that we have a plausibility structure, which is essentially what we believe is true and possible about the world, that matches reality in a way that theistic evolution and Darwinian evolution cannot match. So if your plausibility structure is 
the only thing that exists is material substance. We don't think that that matches reality in nearly as good a way as we believe that the universe is created by God and sustained by him. He gave us minds to think. He gave an intelligible universe to discover, to make sense of. He gave us repeatable processes to use. Those are two completely different plausibility structures. And at some point, we have to make a judgment about which one fits the universe as it is better than the other. And this is where a lot of the critique on the philosophical side comes at theistic evolution is it's, it's a muted, it's a stunted plausibility structure for explaining the world. Um, and you can get as theological as you want with this. Stephen Meyer, who's a scientist, makes the case in the intro chapter to this section one of the reasons I don't believe in theistic evolution is I don't think that God front-loaded everything into scientific laws, even if those laws could explain everything, because that's not what I read about God doing in the Bible. Yeah. I, I read about God being involved with life on earth and his people throughout the Bible. Why would I believe in a system that has some form of, of, of pseudo-deism yeah. uh, at the beginning yeah. to try to explain the way the universe works? Yeah, there's some definite latent deism in that point of view, and I'm glad he pointed that out. Uh, I, I do think even the guys in this book do make some assumptions about how we should think of God acting in the universe. There weren't always particularly helpful assumptions, but I think that is a lot of the discussion, whether you're in the God of the Gaps conversation or any of the others. It, what am I expecting God to do, and do I expect it to be distinguishable from something I could observe? Uh, could a person who does not believe in the existence of God see something God did and not know God did it? Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes when I'm reading these fellows, it, it, the assumption is, well, no, you know, that's the God thing. And I, I'm not clear that that's the case, and, and that we have to make that argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think that was a really good point on just the, lining that up with the God in the Bible and is this reasonable does this look like the creation account that we have because the idea is that he put into effect these natural laws and that he allowed those to basically form life through the process of evolution mm -hmm. and i i agree that i don't think that really aligns with what you see even in the creation story itself with god's role in it uh -huh. i can't remember if it's job or one of the prophets but there's a line by the breath of god the frost is given uh-huh and i don't think christians would claim that uh, without believing in God, you cannot come up with a naturalistic explanation of Frost. Right. Or that God has to intervene in some uh, special way to produce Frost, or you know, anything like that. Right. Uh, or that the existence of Frost immediately makes it obvious that there is a God, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense. But that there is a connection, and that... Uh, now, sort that out. Think about what that connection is. Yeah. Warrants more attention. But when you, I see things like that, by the breath of God, the frost is given, that's very different than, and then he walked on water kind of mm -hmm. act of God. In, yeah, in, right. And, and they knew. I mean, they looked at it. I, I don't yeah. think they waited up in the morning to see if the frost was actually God breathing down from the sky. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think they understood that that had some kind of metaphorical intent. Yes, I would totally agree with that. And, and you know, I wonder about why, as a, as a population, Christians are so skittish about the relationship between science and the Bible, particularly when it comes to passages like that. I mean, some of it would be how we've been coached to see science in the ancient world. I think this is where the new atheists were probably very effective in browbeating Christians into beliefs about the Bible that Christians literally have never held. Um, yeah. You know, so you have people like Christopher Hitchens talking about God as a moral monster in the Old Testament. It's like, well, if you don't accept any of the things that the Bible says about why God did what he did or any of the assumptions about the universe that he created, then I can see how you would think that he is yeah. a genocidal maniac in the Old Testament. But taken on the Bible's own premises, I don't think that's what the Bible's presenting. You know, the same thing is true with the people like, well, the Bible obviously presents a flat earth. Obviously what? what? What do you mean, obviously? I mean, obviously so, uh, you know, there's a passage that you can cite where it looks like the sun is moving instead of the earth. And, and given the history of science, then we equate that to mean that Christians who are committed Pretty to inerrancy Copernican idiots. Yeah, have, yeah. To, have to be committed to that. Yeah. That's an area where I feel like the, the, the new atheists were really successful, is they were able yeah. to tell Christians, 
well, you, if you believe the Bible, you have to believe this. And a lot of Christians believed it. But I, but I think the boogeyman of the new atheists has, has gone away in some ways, and less people are believing what they said you had to believe if you're a biblical Christian uh, now. The, the new atheism, atheism had a tremendous shock value that in a culture that loves shock value. I mean, it was really potent. Yes. But as, as the intellectual Christians and intellectual atheists of the last few decades have told us, this is not going to last. There's no staying power right. to this argument. And there are just have there have been for literally thousands of years better discussions of this subject yes. than we're having on YouTube right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's part of the reason why it has subsided is that yeah. just that lack of staying power. Back to your, your point about how Christians think about God acting in the world and how do we get pigeonholed in that. Um, I was thinking, I was watching some the other day, it's a uh, William Lane Craig debating somebody, one of those uh, kind of dry debates that he has sometimes. Yeah. And they get to discussing the the guy debating it uh, is a strict materialist, mm-hmm. right? And so he wants to know how can God, who is a spirit, act on material world? And I think Christians are probably hung up on that and mm-hmm. don't know it. Right. And Craig makes a a counterexample, like if you. If you can just conceive of a non-materialist universe for a second, if you believe any non-material entity exists, you have the same problem with the mind-body problem. Exactly. How do I do anything? Mm -hmm. I believe, to forget God, I am in some sense a non-material entity who does material consequence and causality in this world. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Yeah. So if if you're not a if you're a strict materialist, you don't have to worry about that either, I guess. Right. Or the mind, or beauty, or truth, or morality. But yes. if you believe in any of those sorts of things, mm-hmm. um, then you should spend a little time thinking: How do those non-material entities interact with the universe? And it opens up some possibilities for mm-hmm. how God does it. Maybe the relationship of God to the creation is very similar to my mind to my body, yeah. where it's, it is holistic, uh, it is, it's, it's not strictly supernatural, and yet it's not exactly natural either. It's, mm-hmm. it's some kind of funny thing in between. Right. And that, that might work for yeah, us. Yeah, that's a really great point. And if God's going to act on the material world, wouldn't creation be first on the list? Well, yeah. Of times yeah. that you would directly... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, yeah, when you read your Bible, if God did anything, right. uh, that would be the one. Right? Yes. I mean, and it is the paradigmatic example of non-material producing material from nothing. Um, yeah. And then obviously that being an action on material. So from a biblical perspective then, if, if part of the spectrum is accept science and fit your Bible in the gaps or accept your Bible and fit science in the gaps, and we want to, we want to do better than that. Yeah. Uh, what is the third way that, for how we approach the relationship between uh, the Bible and science? I haven't read that book yet. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I often feel pigeonholed into one of those two options, mm-hmm. and as a, a person of faith, when I'm forced, like you'd say, show me your hand, I want to see it now, I end up saying, okay, I'll take the Bible. Yeah. And I think that is the faithful answer I'm supposed to give mm-hmm. if that's my only two options. Right. I feel like there should be a third option, and I feel like that book hasn't been written yet. And I'd yeah. really like to see it, Cole, so get it started. Would, yeah, I don't know that I could write that book, but <laughs> I do feel like that is the phenomenon that, you, that you're confronted with is, okay, here's your choice, one of the two. And then you can, you can make a good faith case for the other one once you commit to one. But... My, you know, my 10-year-old son, uh, at that level, fourth grade science, he just competed in a, a dad brag, he just won uh, second place at a scholastic competition in science, you know, and he's, he's enjoys science. Yeah. And I love that. And he comes home and he asks me, so which one am I supposed to believe, the Bible or science? Yeah. Like at that level has already picked up on you need to make a choice. Right. And... I was prepared for a lot of conversations. I was not prepared for that conversation because I realized I didn't even have yeah. that third option articulated yet. Yeah. Even though I really feel like there is a third option I haven't got to. Right. You know, I, I think to not, not, not to put this naively, 
But if we are going to see science as a subset of capital T truth, mm-hmm. and we believe that the Bible is at least the most authoritative contour of capital T truth. So, for example, you know, the one, one of the things you hear over and over again is the Bible is not a science textbook. It's not. But it is a definition of what we know to be true about God and about the world and about our relationship with Christ, uh, encompassing things like scientific exploration of the world. The Bible is not a dictionary. Yeah. But when it says they called him Christ, which means anointed or something like that, I assume it was a good definition. You know, and so I I get tired of that. Well, it's not a science textbook or it's, it's not a geography book. No, but if there's no such place as Jerusalem, I think we have a problem. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, and so if it's going to entail yeah. certain things that are true uh, as a subset of truth, then again, I said not naively saying then you read the Bible and then go do science based on what the Bible says, yeah. uh, but there should be some kind of relationship. It, it's a the Bible is logically prior. It is conceptually prior, but it is related to things like morality, philosophy, science, engineering, all of those things. Now, those things begin to fan out in their own directions and obviously are incredibly complicated uh, enterprises of their own right. But I'm wondering if one of the ways that we reconcile these two is we take the contours of what the Bible says about the universe and then we use those to do science as a subset of what the Bible says about the universe, applying the virtues that the Bible says anthropologically, so about us, that we should be curious, that we have minds that can ascertain things about the world that God made. You know, and, and we could go down the list to guide the discipline of whatever it is that we find ourselves doing, in this particular case being science. Paradigm example of that is Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny that he has been like hijacked from us by the materialist atheist, right? Uh, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson loves Newton, and that's mm-hmm. his guy. And you read Newton. I mean, you'd think that Newton discovered gravity and threw God out of heaven. Uh-huh. If you, back to my love affair with history of science, you read any Newton, I mean, every introduction to any of his stuff is a dedication to the glory of God and how... I, I marvel that I can exist in the sensorium of God and see how uh-huh. he moves the planets. I mean, he never imagined he was dethroning anyone in heaven. Right. Uh, he didn't think he had to choose. Mm-hmm. And if we could recapture what was it Newton was doing, there might be a reason he could see further into the mechanics of the world than anybody else could because maybe mm-hmm. he got that synthesis that we were looking for right. on some like next-level plane. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think it, it it is explained by the fact that a lot of through history, a lot of the best science and art for the course of fifteen hundred years yeah. was done by Christian people because they had the virtue of knowing that this was God's world, um, and they didn't have the fear of. And there is this whole other discipline that is actually opposed to God called science <laughs> yeah. that we can engage in. They saw them as concentric circles. That Western civilization thing, it wasn't bad. You know? yeah. I mean, it, it worked out okay. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that the book begins to focus on is what biblical claims are pertinent to this conversation about science. And I think those come down to maybe two or three big areas. Uh, the first one being the historical Adam. And we covered this a little bit in the podcast we did six months or so ago about the age of the earth. But I think it's worth recapping why Adam is important in the conversation of faith and science. So what's at stake with Adam when we start talking about this? I think in the context of evolution, you have an issue with Adam, with the idea of, well, when was the crossover, if it was this gradual evolution into humanity as we know it today, where does Adam fall into that? And so there's automatically a conflict there with how you see Adam, because if you hold a Darwinian or neo-Darwinian mindset, then it's hard to reconcile where there could be a first man created in the image of God and how that fits into this slow progression of Mm -hmm. evolutionary process. Right. Yeah, I think with Adam it comes down to unique creation on the one hand uh, versus did Adam just arise from a long chain of uh, development. 
and then uh, common descent from Adam on the other. And, you know, this is where there's a lot of breadth in the Christian world. So, Biologos, for example, which we would consider the evolutionary-leaning branch of the the Christian group, there's a lot of latitude there in in the sense that I think Dennis Lamoureux, for example... Uh, doesn't believe in a unique creation of Adam and Eve and does not believe that Adam and Eve are the, are the human parents of all humanity. He believes that God picks two hominids out of a group and then through some act of special creation or something brings them to a level of knowledge and consciousness that's different and then they end up communicating that to the rest of the group. Whereas you have people like Tim Keller who's, who's affiliated with Biologos who does believe in the unique creation of Adam and Eve, uh, but also believes that there are evolutionary processes going on around them uh, that predate them and they fall into that line. So there's a lot of difference here in terms of what uh, Christians believe on this. In my mind, uh, this comes down to where should we draw lines. And the first line I think that has to be drawn um, is biblical inerrancy. So if, if we think that the Bible is inerrant, then there are certain things that we can and can't say about Adam and Eve. Uh, And I think that we expect the science to back this up eventually. Um, You know, an inerrant view of the Bible and and the the conceptual frame that we've put in place in the last 15 minutes or so doesn't guarantee that we get everything right immediately, uh, or even within 100 years. It means that the limit as time approaches new heavens and new earth of our science is accuracy to what God has revealed about the world. So when it comes to Adam and Eve in an inerrant worldview, I think the things that we have to assert are that in some way Adam and Eve were the first humans. Um, And the second thing is that I think uh, that they were the first of their kind. Um, And in my view, that's going to outlaw a long progression of uh, evolution up to the point where you were basically almost a human and then God makes them a human. I, I don't see that. But I guess that's probably permissible within biblical inerrancy. In the Grudem chapter early on, 72 and 73, he makes a 12-point list of what he thinks theistic evolutionists have to deny about the creation account. Uh, I thought he overstated it a bit. Wayne Grudem overstating something? Imagine, yeah. To to quickly run through his list with commentary, uh, a theistic evolution would have to say, one, Adam and Eve were not the first human beings. Um, I'm not sure they have to say that. Yeah. Um, number two, Adam and Eve were born from human parents. Well, they're going to say it's dependent on the definition of human. Yeah. They might say there's some gray line we crossed, and they're the first we will define as human. Right. Three, God did not act directly or specially to create Adam out of dust from the ground. That probably that one's going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, that that one probably does. Uh, four, God did not directly create Eve from a rib taken from Adam's side. Again. Along with the dust, that story is going to be a problem. Yeah. Uh, five, Adam and Eve were never sinless human beings. Um, if you define sin as re- entailing moral culpability and capacity, you can make an argument that before some moment they didn't. Right. I mean, that's not even my view. And I'm still looking at Greed and saying, I'm, I'm not sure they say that. Yeah. Um, Adam and Eve did not commit the first human sins. Again, same argument. Right. Uh, seven, human death did not begin as a result of Adam's sin. Now, that's a much better point. You have yeah. a lot of things dying before Adam. Eight, not all human beings have descended from Adam and Eve, for there were thousands of other human beings on earth. Uh, I'll defer that one to our geneticist, but I'm, I'm thinking that he's probably on point there. Nine, God did not directly act in the natural world to create different kinds of fish, birds, and land animals. That's going to depend entirely on the definition of the word directly act and what he means by that. The biologist people are going to take issue. Ten, God did not rest from his, and he even has rest in quotation marks because he knows what a mess that is. (laughs) God did not rest from his work of creation and stop any special creative activity. Um, Yeah. Eleven, God never created an originally very good natural world. That was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I think biologist has to answer that. Mm-hmm. Is there a very good world that exists at any point in evolutionary history? Right. That's a great question. Twelve, after Adam and Eve sinned, God did not place any curse on the world. I'm not sure that he has to. So of yeah. those, there's like three or four. Like, ooh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. He turns it into a list of twelve, 
that I think uh, the biologist people would say, yeah, but that's not what we claim. Right. Yeah, I don't think a lot of theistic evolutionists have to ab- abide by that entire list. But to shrink down what the Bible does teach about Adam and Eve, I think you do have to confront a few of those questions. Yeah. And, you know, the most famous passages when people have this discussion are Romans chapter 5 yep. and 1 Corinthians 15. And, of yep. course, there's other areas. I mean, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul does mention Eve was deceived, you know, by the serpent. Mm-hmm. But especially if we're going to say that those two discussions really frame the way that we look at how Adam and Eve in the creation story was interpreted in Scripture itself. One of the things we have to assert is, if, if the phrase from Paul is, through one man sin entered, through one man life entered, you have Adam, you have the second Adam who is Jesus, I think what you have to assert there is that in order to make that statement, Adam has to be a historical person. I don't think you can say through one mythical person sin entered the world, through one real person life and righteousness and and truth entered the world. I don't think you can say that. In the same way that nobody's arguing when Paul says, or or when John says, through Moses the law came, through Jesus grace and truth came. Well, Jesus is real, but Moses is not. Well, there's just not a historical case against the existence of Moses is the only reason why you don't hear that discussion with Adam as well. I think in asserting that, you have to say that Paul viewed Adam as being a literal human being. Where it goes beyond the argument of that passage, even though I agree with this point, I don't think you can make the argument from that passage that that means that Abraham is the unique father of the human race. I just don't think so. Because if Jesus can bring life to everyone, and he is not the biological father of of everyone (laughs) in the human race, then surely Adam could bring sin and death into the world by not being the father of the human race. So I think being careful about what the Bible teaches from what passage, even when we believe more than that, is an important discipline in the way that we interpret Scripture. So up until this point in those passages, I think we have to assert yes to a historical Adam. I think we got to go other places than just that statement, those two statements from Paul on what we believe about were there other people, what about uh, the evolutionary process before that. I think that... That's what that passage proves. Would you have anything to say if I made an argument and making a mistake of thinking and talking with the microphone in front of me at the same time? So we'll see where this goes. But uh, that it's some kind of accommodative language in the same way the Old Testament might describe uh, God defeating Baal. But then Paul would say, well, you know, the idol has no real existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any case that you could build that in an accommodative way... Um, yeah, there's some being back there that you've heard about, but actually Christ is the reality of which he's yeah. nonsense, Easter Bunny style. You know, I, yeah. I'm not buying it even as I say it, but I'm just trying to think, is there any way you can Well, you I can think what the argument it? shows is that you need more of the biblical witness to be specific about yeah. what that means. And, and that's where I thought a, a really genius part of the argument in this book is the importance of genealogies for the perspective of human history. So, for example, all through the Bible, you're getting these genealogies. Uh, Genesis 10 is is really important, and 11, all the way up to 1 Chronicles. And then in the Gospels, especially Luke and Matthew, are both making the point that if we trace history back, and I I don't by any means think that uh, they include every single generation in the history of humanity, but I do think it's significant that when they trace history back to Adam, who is the parent of humanity, they're asserting something that they believe, which is all of us descend from Adam. And in a roundabout way, you know, if you follow the story in Genesis, we all also descend from Noah because we have the flood and and all that. And, And we can talk about the existence of the flood if we have time. But I think the genealogies actually bring another layer of precision to the passages that we see in Paul that maybe give us a more complete picture of how the Bible interprets the history of humanity. It's in a literal sense, too. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. Yes. It's not just that we're in the line or we're in the same purpose as what was started before us. It's yeah. actual, actually literal. K.A. Kitchen makes this point about Old Testament history generally, that it's not written like mythology. Mythology over the Golden Mountains and in the lollipop land of wherever the elf comes from. You know, mm-hmm. There's some magic world, and that's where the gods did these things. Chapter 5 of Genesis has very particular names mm-hmm. and then attaches ages to it, which is right. completely unnecessary fictional information. Right. 
if that's what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. He right. lived a really long time and he died and he was great would be completely sufficient yeah. uh, to make your point if that was your point. Right. And so that's where I think there is a little bit of room to argue with, with the biblical text as far as what it says about Adam, especially in light of a conversation like this where we're trying to talk about the scientific implications. Um, if we're going to begin to draw lines, I think one of the important lines is that the Bible seems to attest to a unique creation of Adam. And whether you believe that that unique creation is there's nothing even remotely like Adam, like you know the biblical witness in Genesis would say, all the beasts in the field, there's nothing similar to Adam to find a mate. And so God creates Eve. Uh, or if you believe that, well, there is a long descent up to the point where God creates Adam in an already populated earth, although not of the same kind, I think we can argue about that. I, I think what we have to decide from an inerrantist perspective is that Adam and Eve were unique, they were the first of their kind, and that humanity descends from them. And of course there's, you know, to refer back to our last episode, there's some conversations we have to have about how two people can produce the population that we have now, given the scientific methods that we're capable of employing on that question. Uh, but that's where I would tend to draw the line. Where, what would you guys think? Yes. <laughs> I think I think we're on the same page on that that uh, there there is there should be some demilitarized zone there around yeah. some of the specifics of Adam but to just do away with him as fanciful myth isn't going to work. Yeah, there's definitely a mythological aspect to it of it being the first and being such a yeah the beginning of everything. Like I I get the idea that there is some that there is that sense around Adam, but at the same time, I don't think there's near enough to go to the point to say, well, it's just myth. Yeah. And that it, there's obviously significance beyond just yeah. Adam, the physical person, but I think it's too much to say that mm-hmm. because of that, then he didn't actually exist. It is just the mythical aspect mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And, and then there are several of these topics I think there's probably a little bit more freedom around than than is typically espoused on either end of the spectrum. You know, from the answers in Genesis crowd on the one side to the evolutionary creationists on the other side. And then with the theistic evolution crowd in the middle, um, you know, we did a podcast on the age of the earth. I think there's definitely room for disagreement on the age of the earth. There's certain commitments I think you need to have in how you arrive at your answer, but uh, there's a lot of difference we can have there. Same thing with things. I mean, I I would assert that Christians need to believe in the historic uh, nature of things like the flood, Cain and Abel, Abraham, just because the Spirit-inspired scriptures in the New Testament assert um, that those things are historic. As to the nature of how those things happened, when those things happened, what else was involved in those things happening, I think there's a lot of room to interpret that. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the flood in the last couple of years, uh, and a conclusion I keep coming to is that all the models of the flood that I come to are too small for the biblical data, not just the ones that make it regional, even mm-hmm. some of the global flood models, if you read the literature of the Old Testament, it was the collapse of the cosmos. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the end of creation except for this little bubble of people on a boat. Right. And and anything that cheats that of its of how big it is is a mistake. On the other hand, the idea that you could just make it a global flood and pretend that fits the data isn't good enough either because it, right. it was kind of like you know, the end of the universe Yes, uh, is the way that it's portrayed. And so... Yeah, let's give us some leeway there of the language is bigger than we know how to fill in, mm-hmm. but at the same time, don't, don't shrink it anymore. We already got a problem that's, yeah. don't make it uh, like that flood over on the river there. Yeah, it's, yeah. Let's, let's make it a little more than that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Well, to, to wrap up some of our conversation on this book, after, after reading the book, what do you guys think are the strongest argument for uh, your views that could be one that surprised you or just one that you're like, man, this has just always been my go-to. They state it really well. What what was the strongest part of the book when it comes to their critique of theistic evolution? So for me, it was probably more on the science side just because that's what tends to resonate more with me. I think just in general, the complexity of all of the life processes and to think of that starting from absolutely nothing and then just by random process you end up with what we have today, I get the idea that if you give it enough time, things will develop. But they do a good job in this book of pointing out 
just how much time would be realistic and it's I mean it's infinite essentially and so those are things that I felt reinforced my views or, or that were really interesting to me is just that idea of I've been able to experience a little bit through the study of, of the sciences the complexity that exists and how to me it's just so much simpler to see that as evidence of creation evidence of design rather than trying to come up with a way against all probability that that could have arisen from a non-random process given random conditions in the universe. Mm-hmm. And um, so they do a really good job of compiling that from across the different sciences. And it's, it's something that is kind of amazing to see that if there was this unifying evolutionary theory that we would see it pop up in all of these different places that would work together. Mm-hmm. So in the fields of paleontology, genetics, microbiology, chemistry, physics, that all of those things would be pointing toward that one unifying idea, but it just doesn't. Every single uh, field that they look at, they're able to show through the book that uh, there are problems in each of them, and it's much easier if you put put down a lot of the cultural pressure uh-huh. um, from Darwinists. It's much easier to see that and attribute it to a creator than it is... Right. I mean, any, it's like in, in law, there's the idea of kind of the, it probably has a, a fancy name, but the reasonable person test, the idea uh-huh. that would a reasonable person be able to look at this and come to a certain conclusion? And to me, they do a great job of laying out everything here that points much more to design, creator, the, the impact of God in the world than it does on the random process of Darwinian evolution by natural selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two arguments that really stood out to me, uh, and either sadly we got to talk very much about, but one is a question of coherence. Uh, theistic evolution requires some use of the phrase guided random process. Mm-hmm. And every time I say it, my head hurts. But those definitions of those two words are very difficult to put together. In my head, it was just you have this process and God's kind of nudging it along, at which point it ceases to be random, though. When you really yes. think about it, that no longer makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, uh, I forget which of the authors said, it's it's barely theistic and it's not at all evolution. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's not <laughs> yeah. either one, uh, yeah. worst of both worlds. So, there's a coherence issue of can you actually have a guided random process? Mm-hmm. And if you can't, why are we bothering? Right. Uh, the second argument, I think, is... Not nearly enough time spent on it. We should just do a whole podcast on C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you. There's a whole chapter on C.S. Lewis. And take, take us through what, what, it's what they say. It's not enough. It's not enough. My favorite essay, he's, he references it a couple times, but it's not enough. He spends a lot more time in his other material. But the favorite essay of his on this topic, it's in a little book called like Reflections or Christian's Reflections, and it's obscure. But he has this essay titled Funeral of a Great Myth, where he says... Uh, and, and I'm sorry, Carson, this be deeply offensive. He says, I don't care about the science of biology. Like, he has no interest whatsoever. He says, if you could convince me today that the science supported Darwinianism, I wouldn't change my mind on this point I'm about to make. And right. it's fascinating that he takes it as a narrative guy, completely from the point of view of story. The, the story of evolution is the story we want, the story of modernism. Things getting better. Mm-hmm. We start low, we go high, and then it's it's a tragedy because at the end everything collapses back down into chaos because and that's the way the universe has to end, mm-hmm. and that's the myth. The biblical story is literally in every sense the reverse. You start at perfection, descend into sin, and are redeemed into new heavens and new earth. Mm. It is the opposite story. He said, so the problem I have is not the science, it's the story. It doesn't fit. So the idea that you could take a down, up, down story and make it mesh with an up, down, up story uh-huh. is inconceivable for Lewis. Yeah. Instead, he says, it sounds more like we had a story and then we came up with some science to match it, which is where he drops his mic drop line. I suppose every generation gets the science they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, you know, being... C.S. Lewis runs through, you know, pre-19th century uh, opera and fiction, and he says, you know, this 
this was the story we were telling each other the the gods ascending over the titans and you know the the excelling excellence of man lifting out of the of course we thought that's what science was going to tell us and it did and we yeah. wanted it to mm-hmm. i thought oh yeah so that's that's for me is at the end of the day i got to pick a story the genesis story i don't know how to lay on top of this other story mm-hmm. if there are scientific mechanisms that come out of evolutionary theory that turn out to be useful and true, fine. I'm, I'm yeah. happy with that. Yeah. As a storyline, it is false. And so how much time do I want to spend trying to marry them together? Uh, I think Lewis would say, I'm not so interested in that. Right. I love. I always love C.S. Lewis's perspective on this. It just, it, it made all the world a difference to me. Yeah. Who else could make that point? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought the strongest argument was Meyer's argument that, uh, you know, theistic evolution rests on the assumption that the mechanism is, is secure, that we can trust what the science says, we trust the narrative, mm-hmm. now we need to figure out how faith goes with that. And through the book, they basically say, actually, the mechanism is, is up in the air. In fact, I don't think this mechanism can produce the kind of change that we see in the world or what certain Darwinian uh, disciplines say that the mechanism can produce. And so, in some ways, the mechanism is not secure. And so, we need a better synthesis. We need a better understanding and a better philosophy of science when it comes to what the mechanism can do. Um, As a point to end on, you know, we ended the last podcast by saying, what would you tell somebody in the sciences? Um, I'd like to end this one by saying, what would you tell people that are studying philosophy or going to Bible college uh, when it comes to this topic? Um. Read, read more Aristotle is probably my answer to any philosophical question. <laughs> uh, it's funny that we've come a really long way in terms of science, but the actual philosophical questions we're asking have not improved or mm-hmm. drastically changed. If anything, the answers aren't as good. Um, once upon a time, science was natural philosophy. Yeah, It was a holistic enterprise, and you knew the questions were related. So Aristotle is already asking questions about causes, effects, Mm -hmm. prime movers, and and all those things that we are now just pretending aren't significant questions. you got Neil deGrasse Tyson out there telling us philosophy is a waste of time for getting to do Mm -hmm. science. Yeah. And I just want to say, go back and read some Aristotle, because uh, the really good questions are still really good questions, and science has not advanced the ball down the field in that area Mm -hmm. at all. Um, except to give us niftier ways of, of doing things. Uh, as mm-hmm. I get to do philosophy in an air-conditioned room now uh, <laughs> yeah. instead of on the Areopagus or whatever. You know, right. <laughs> It's not made a difference to the big questions. And then in the same way, now to be a Christian, in the same way Aristotle needed God to answer his questions and apparently never got there, Yeah, uh, we need that same answer. There is a God-shaped hole in Aristotelian philosophy he goes as far as you can go without God, and we have not gotten closer to anything, right? Yes. So if anything, the hole's bigger. Yeah. Uh, so go back and read some Aristotle. You'll be better off. Um, yeah, you can read Darwin. I I, I remember reading uh, Origin of the Species. It was a good experience to read that. Yeah. But you just compare, you know, punch for punch, Nicomachean Ethics from Aristotle to Origin of the Species. Yeah. They're not even the same league. I mean, yeah. the level of competence and engagement with the universe. Yeah. Aristotle. Yeah, I think as somebody with a background in the, the sciences, I would say a similar thing, and that is that if you are going into the fields of philosophy or to Bible college or into theology, I think just to keep in mind that, yes, science has a, a place in finding truth, but there's a lot of cultural pressure to say that anything science says is truth and that's that. So I think just to keep in mind the responsibility of philosophers and theologians to go beyond where science can go Mm -hmm. in order to find truth. And of course, to use science as it should be used, uh, but not to succumb to the idea that you you can be trumped by science in a field of philosophy or theology. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where a lot of the cultural pressure is. So I liked, Ben, what you said about Aristotle and the idea that um, in philosophy, I I think that's like we had explained at the very beginning of uh, part one, the idea that for us we were able to see 
God and the creator through science, even at an early age. And I think the same is true for philosophy Mm -hmm. and just what, with what you had said, that there is a a clear guide to truth through those fields, maybe than there is through science sometimes. And so I think just not to be, uh, not to believe that only science can provide truth. And if you're a study, you know, doesn't fall in line at every step that it's okay. And that those things can be, uh, used on the same level in order to figure out what truth is. Definitely. I, I think looking forward to the future, Alvin Plantigo made it where it was okay to be a Christian and a philosopher again mm-hmm. for the first time in a very long time. Yeah. We're waiting for that guy who's going to do that for science. Mm-hmm. Newton did it. It's just been too long, apparently, and we've yeah. forgotten. But we're waiting for that guy who really, on a public, large scale, makes it okay and credible to be a Christian and a scientist. Uh, and we need more people taking a shot at it because it's, it's important. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.